Breathing in diesel exhaust fumes is like walking into a fire without a mask. Over time, those toxins lead to cancer. Protect yourself with MagnaGrip, the easiest, most reliable exhaust removal system that features a true 100% seal to eliminate diesel exhaust fumes. To get free grant assistance, visit MagnaGrip.com. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, and powered with the strength of Enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Hello, everybody. Um, so I'm Dr. Beth Murphy, and uh, this is the Firefighter Behavioral Health Show, and um, and we're using a different format. So this is um, kind of exciting and very new. Um, so uh, John, one of the fire lawyers, and my husband, he's actually done this before, so uh, he has experience with it, but he's on the show with me because um, it's sometimes nice to get questions from someone else or, um, it, you know, to maybe point something out because, um, yeah, sometimes I forget what I wanted to say. <laughs> so, um, so uh, I guess with that, you know, I, as always, if you know me, you know that sometimes um I figure out what I'm going to talk about last minute, which sometimes works well and sometimes it's a bit scattered. Um, but I always pick something that is related uh, to me personally or to the clients that I work with. So, um, man, I've talked about some of the things that I personally have struggled with and how that has um, influenced or I'm I'm not sure influence, but um, it has um, I guess been a strong reminder of um, the work that I do with other people, and um, and maybe has reminded me to uh, be well. I think I'm always sensitive, but. I, I don't know. It just like kind of, I think, deepens the work that I do with other people. And then I learn a lot from other people, too. So it's um, and, the, and that sometimes causes me to reflect on myself as well. Um, and so there seems to have been, um, well, there's been themes going around lately. And sometimes I wonder if I notice those themes because it's like something that maybe I'm struggling with or if it's like everybody seems to struggle with these things at the same time. Um, so I always find that interesting. Um, anyway, getting to our topic. Um my husband actually suggested this topic and I was kind of hemming and hawing about it. And I wasn't sure if it was something that I wanted to share, but I thought maybe I will. Um, and, and I'll also discuss my hesitance in discussing it. Um, so with that said, as many of you know, uh, last year in August, um, August 13th, to be exact, um, I had a first-time seizure, and um, and it was status seizure, and I went to the hospital, um, first time ever riding in an aid car as a patient, which I said I would never ride in an aid car as a patient unless I was unconscious. So apparently I was conscious, sort of, but I don't remember. So to me, that's as good as being unconscious. Um, and so I spent the weekend in the hospital, uh, ruined my husband's milestone birthday. <laughs> and, uh, and 
apparently when I got out, I had a lovely dinner with my daughters who live in the area and I don't remember a thing. Um, and so uh, I basically don't remember anything for about a month. Um, but that weekend, definitely like it's, it's nothing. I mean, I remember only what people told me, um, not because I have a memory of that, but it's like, cause people told me. So, um, and, and what I had said before is like, you know, they found that I had a, a meningioma, so a tumor on the meninges. So, um, you know, I mean, you could say brain tumor, but it's not a tumor that actually was growing from the brain, but from the meninges. And then um, it actually was kind of small, but it had a lot of swelling. And, um, and it was the swelling that uh, caused the seizures. Um, so that meant um, I was going to go see a neurologist and then have a consult with a neurosurgeon. And all that was supposed to happen within like the week um, from when I was in the hospital, except a few days after I got home, I got COVID. So um, I was able to do my neurologist appointment um, uh, through telehealth, but the neurosurgeon said he would only meet in person. So I had to wait until I recovered from the COVID and was um, symptom, symptom free. So um, that pushed things off a couple of weeks. And then once I saw the neurosurgeon, um, you know, the decision was to do surgery and um, remove the tumor and decrease the swelling. Um, and he didn't have anything in his schedule for like another two weeks. So it's like basically everything got pushed off. Um, and I kind of feel like I got kind of lost in the cracks um, because I had this swelling on my brain and they didn't treat that. And um, because it was, I think the intention was I was supposed to get, uh, get everything taken care of like pretty quickly. So um, it basically was a month. And so I had a month of like sitting at home on the couch um, with this tumor, which I don't think was the biggest deal, but the swelling on my brain. And I just felt like I was failing to thrive. Um, and I, I may have said that when I actually talked about this experience of the tumor before. Um, but I was, um, yeah, I was actually, I, I wasn't afraid, but I had worry. I was worried um, that, you know, this was it. And I agonized over um, asking, you know, my daughter who was in Hawaii to come out um, because, you know, like dying was on my mind. Um, but I didn't want to share that with anybody. I didn't want anybody to be um, overly concerned <laughs> because that's, that's what people who take care of people do. Um, pretty much every firefighter I work with is like pretty much that way. Um, so I had, uh, I had surgery um, and I, I kind of talked about like the, all this part like before, um, but you know, lots of things going through my head, but mostly just this kind of apathy and and worry about dying and um, uh, pretty much that's it. So like not a lot of fear. Um, in fact, I wasn't even afraid of spiders anymore, which was really funny. Um, it was like, oh, look, a spider instead of ah, spider. Um, so I had surgery a month later. Uh, I think that was on the 22nd of September and my daughter surprised me. She showed up with my grandkids. And so that was really amazing. And, um, then I went in, I had the surgery, um, and it was the first day kind of, you know, well, tired when you come out of surgery and off anesthesia. Um, and I mean, actually felt pretty good. Um, because I remember the first time I had surgery like this, I did not feel good at all. <laughs> um, and then the next day I felt great. Like I, I had slept, um, 
well, I mean, as well as you can with people coming in and poking and prodding you every hour, every two hours. And uh, the next day I felt great. And, um, and it's like, I could think and I felt energized and it just, it just felt amazing. Um, and I felt like I could do anything, which is really cool. Cause like, I think I had also said previously is that I'm, um, working with the Seattle firefighters healthcare trust and, um, building a behavioral health program, um, in conjunction with their, uh, medical clinic, which they do annual firefighter medical exams. Um, and so I, I felt like this is awesome and I can do this. And I had all these ideas and I felt like I could finally like do them. So, um, so after, um, you know, I, I felt good and I didn't think anything about it. Um, I, it took me about six months, I think, to like start getting back to work. Um, I mean, well, I kind of worked um, after my brain started feeling like it was engaged again. And then, um, and then about six months, I guess, I like started going back into the clinic and, um, you know, tried to like get my schedule organized and start seeing more people. And, and then there were things, all, other things going on. So um, we went to Australia, uh, which was a trip that we had planned, and that was amazing. Um, and then, um, and then we had a short trip that was like to North Carolina recently for my um, my husband's. Uh, I guess like my my gr- my grandson, <laughs> my my husband's grandson. Um, uh, so. Uh, that was that was kind of fun, but it was hard to go because I had a lot of work to do. I'd gotten really behind. Well, something that I didn't realize um, was how much I was actually affected by my experience. And so this is like kind of the the hard thing is is like actually to admit like what that was. Um, which then it makes me think of like every firefighter I've ever worked with um, because there's a lot of fear about talking about mental health stuff. (laughs) And, and, and there's a worry that if you, if you come out with it, then people aren't going to trust you. And, and I actually, when my husband proposed that I talk about this, I kind of had a little panic because I'm like, well, then people aren't going to trust me. Um, they're gonna they're gonna doubt me, and I, I don't know. Maybe maybe some of you who listen to this might, and um, I I don't know. But or maybe maybe you'll be um, uh, I don't know if inspired is the right word, um, but for lack of a better word, inspired to uh, come out and talk about like what you're experiencing. So. It's it's interesting because I'm I'm a psychologist and I'm supposed to know this and I still didn't recognize it or maybe I was in denial but I I basically ended up at a place where I I needed to I needed to admit what I was experiencing and so basically that was um PTSD um it was something that was kind of slow and insidious, I guess, in building up. Um, you know, I, I thought the hard part was past when I got through the surgery and I felt better. Um, I found that, um, you know, I tried to jump back into work and um, found that my uh, brain got tired fast, which is, I think that that's like normal for after having um, a craniotomy. Um, And so like I had to pace myself, uh, which is not something I do well, which I I know that pretty much every firefighter listening knows that. Um, I was the same way when I was a firefighter and I got hurt. Um, Pacing yourself is not really a strong suit. So um, 
when I started, I, I was trying to think of like when I first started noticing things and, and I really don't, I don't know, honestly, it, it wasn't until I had the full realization of what I was experiencing. And I looked back at what it was, um, and, and what I was noticing. Um, so I'm not really sure when it started, but, but I do remember, um, experiencing some things like what I had experienced prior to having the surgery, uh, that kind of stuck with me because it's stuff that like my daughters had told me they had noticed these changes. And so, um, so I noticed like I was like kind of irritable and I'm sure, I'm sure John would say, yeah, you were kind of short. Um, and I know I was before and, and I thought I was better, but then it was, I kind of felt like I was irritable again. Um, and I thought, well, that's just cause I'm, you know, I'm busy. Uh, so that was something that I look back on and I remember thinking it's like, okay, I know, I know that they got all the tumor and the swelling is down. I trust that. So I don't have to worry about that again, at least not so soon. And, um, and I know that they're going to be tracking it. So I am like having to reassure myself like that irritability has nothing to do with the, you know, like more swelling or a tumor or whatever. Um, and so I, I remembered kind of having that like stuff talk and, um, and then, uh, I noticed that I was like staying up late again, you know, and I, and I'd done that a little, I'd done that before, but it's like, I, I don't do well when I go to bed late and I still get up early. So, um, you know, so it's like, well, okay, I wasn't sleeping much. So that could be the irritability and, and then memory, uh, challenges. Um, but I, you know, it's like, I wanted to go to bed earlier and I, I couldn't figure out why, like I would be tired, but I would still stay up past being tired. And I didn't know why, um, it really, it was more an unconscious thing and less of a conscious decision. Um, so those two things kind of stood out when I look back and then, um, I, I just kind of like was kind of off and on, on like the, on the clinic work. Um, you know, it's like, I, I cared, but it's like how much I, you know, like my thought about how much I cared wasn't showing through, I think, um, uh, because it's like, I was like really disorganized and, um, and organization is not my strong suit, but, again, it just kind of felt big. And, and I, um, I think I had this thought, like, I feel like I'm self-sabotaging. Like I'm, I'm trying, like I, I told my husband, I'm like, well, now I feel, I, I feel like I'm gonna get fired again. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I, I don't think that that's an issue, but it's kind of like, I, it, it was kind of an irrational thought. And, um, but then I, I thought, well, but I'm doing stuff that like, if I worked for me, I would fire me. So I'm like, I, what am I doing? Like, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm self-sabotaging and I'm, um, you know, basically, uh, it's like, like almost forcing somebody to, to fire me. And, um, and then it's like, then I can, like be okay. Well, I guess I'm fired now <laughs> and I don't have to deal with anything. Not that I wanted that. And I don't want that. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I was just kind of struggling. It felt really uncertain about stuff. I mean, so it was like all these kind of little things and, um, and I just, uh, I don't feel like I was as happy, um, and carefree. Um, and I, I kind of felt like I was wearing a mask and, um, and I, I don't really know how to, how to describe it any different than that. So, um, so here are all these things that if somebody came to me and they talked to me about it, um, I would have been like, well, of course, like, think about what you just 
have been through. You know, it's like it it's normal to have that reaction and and you, you know, you um you know, you had a, a trauma. I mean, I've had like a lot of surgeries and like every surgery is a trauma. Uh but I'd never been affected um or felt what I felt after this time. Um so it was like really it was hard and it, it's like and it just wasn't sinking in that I might have I might be struggling. I might be experiencing um, PTS, post-traumatic symptoms, um, because I had a traumatic event. Um, so I ended up having a conversation with a really my best friend, who's off, also a therapist, and um, she's probably the only place, oh, only place, the only person in my life that can actually say certain things to me. Uh, I would get mad at anybody else, but I don't, I don't know for her. It's like, she can pretty much be pretty blunt. Um, but, you know, we just started talking and, um, and so I realized that um, the sleeping was something about um, not, it's like, I didn't want to go to sleep because I didn't, I didn't wake up. I mean, I know I like woke up, but it's like when I had my seizures, it's like I I didn't wake up. Like I consciously was not awake and aware. And so there was like that, um, like a fear of going to sleep. And so, and I know a lot of the people that I work with, a lot of the firefighters will have trouble with sleep um, because they all have nightmares. And, and it's like, when I went to sleep, I, I like went to sleep and slept hard. Um, but it's because I was, I mean, I was really tired and, um, I would like lay my head down and pretty much within five minutes would be asleep, but then I'd only be getting about five hours. Um, so I would delay my bedtime until it's like, my body's just like, you're sleeping. (laughs) There's no question about it. Um, and so that realization was kind of telling too. And then the other thing that we talked about was um, the fact that I don't remember anything. And and I had been thinking about that off and on, just kind of like I would bring it up in my head and kind of turn it around and look at it and trying to figure it out. Like there was a, this big chunk of of time that I don't remember, but I was still like engaged with people and I don't think anybody knew while I was going through that, that that was an issue for me. Um, But I was trying really hard to make sense of it and my brain kept going to it. And, um, and so that was something else that I realized um, really bothered me. And so with, with that information, like all those bits and pieces, and then also recognizing myself and some of my clients who I had actually diagnosed with PTSD. I thought, uh, I think that might be me. <laughs> so um, one of the assessments that I give people is the PCL5, which is the post-traumatic checklist um, five, meaning it references the diagnostic statistical manual, like the DSM-5. I should probably know what it stands for, but it's like the DSM-5. I never look at the long, the actual name of it. Um, But that's what I use. That's what anybody who is um, treating somebody who comes in with uh, anything, uh, mental health, psychological, behavioral, it's it's like we go to the DSM-5 to figure out like, okay, well, what is the diagnosis? Um, So I printed up a... um, PCL five and actually gave it to myself. Um, and, and, uh, and actually the first part of it is like, there's also the LEC five, which is the life event checklist. And, um, for that one, it has a number of <clears throat> events or incidents that are considered a criterion, a trauma. And, and so that trauma is like, uh, it's like, you have to have like that trauma um, in order to meet the criteria to be diagnosed with PTSD. And so the list of things 
are, um, you know, things like, you know, natural, have you experienced a natural disaster, um, you know, like an earthquake or flood? Um, have you ever, um, have you, I'm like, what did I do with it? I actually have one of these out, but um, so any of that that's traumatic. So like been in a, a type of vehicle accident, um, uh, had a serious uh, illness or injury or um, been kidnapped or uh, been shot at or, um, you know, attacked in some way. Um, you know, so it's like those types of traumas. And those are the things that um, most firefighters are exposed to during the course of their career. And, um, and, the, and the same for me. So it's like, so I started out with that. And I, and I checked all of those, you know, what applied to me. So it's like, did it happen to you? Did it happen to, did, uh, did you witness it? Did you learn about it from someone that went through it that was close to you? Um, was it part of your job um, or don't know or doesn't apply? So those are your choices. And so that was the first thing is like, I'm like, wow, I've actually experienced a lot of trauma, which I just didn't think about. And, and uh, like what I mentioned earlier, I never thought about um, my surgeries uh, as, well, I won't say never, I did. Like in passing, I'm like going, well, yeah, surgeries are a trauma. So if somebody came to me and they were experiencing post-traumatic symptoms and they had a history of surgeries, I would be right there saying, well, yeah, those are traumas. <laughs> Um, but you know, for some reason it's like that just didn't register with me. So, um, so that was the first thing. So then I went to like the second part of this whole assessment is, um, like, you know, well, what's the, what's the worst trauma. And, um, you know, sometimes it's like people will put down like the most recent one, the one that's most on their mind, or it could be a trauma that was from a long time ago that is uh, still haunting them. And then you, and then when you think about that, you answer the questions of like in the past month, how bothered were you by, and then there's a list of symptoms. And so these symptoms correspond directly with the criteria that is in the DSM-5 to um, that you use to diagnose like PTSD. So I took the assessment and, um, and I read it and I answered, well, I continue. The first tendency was to minimize like what I was actually experiencing, um, which is something I see a lot in firefighters. I have given the PCL, I give the PCL five to every firefighter I see um, when they first come in to see me. And um, sometimes they answer and it's pretty honest and consistent with their story and what they're telling me. A lot of times they minimize and, and it's like, well, it's not that bad. Um, and I, I think it's hard to like really face what we're experiencing. And, and there are a few reasons. One is that you don't want to admit to yourself that you're struggling. Um, and I totally understand that because I just, I lived, I just lived it. Um, and then, you know, the other, the other, and I've heard this a lot is like, well, it's, you know, it's part of my job. It's like, it's what I signed up for. And so somehow, because you knew you were going to be going into a profession that is highly stressful for a lot of reasons, um, not just the calls, but, um, you know, like the, the sleep schedule, um, the, um, your coworkers, the administration, the training. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's a mix of everything. So it's like, so you're going into this job that you know is stressful. And it's like, that's this, you carry that stress on top of your own stress. And that's hard. And so it's like, so I've seen this uh, with other, with other firefighters. It's like, so I, and I know this. So 
so I'm like, I'm going to answer this honestly, even though it's really hard to see it um, in black and white since I was looking at the assessment. So for, you know, I'll tell you there's 20 questions or 20 symptoms on the PCL5. The first five um, are the symptoms that correspond with like the reliving, reliving experiences. And so it could be like repeated, disturbing and unwanted memories of the stressful experience or experiences. Um, for fire, many of the firefighters I've worked with, they had so many that, and, and if you're listening, I'm sure you're thinking, well, yeah, me too. Um, it's, it's hard to think about like one, um, sometimes they come in and it's like the most recent one. And so it's like, yes, it's that one. Cause that's the one that kind of, um, tipped the scale and it's the most prominent, but a lot of times it's like, I like what, which one do you want me to just pick one? <laughs> because it's like so many. And so when I give this to them, I will say experiences. Um, Cause it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, your job is the trauma. <laughs> um, your job is the experience. And so it's like that way you don't pick just one. And that actually fits well with the, uh, uh, presumption law. So in Washington state, PTSD is considered presumptive. So it's assumed that PTSD comes from uh, doing your job. Um, so, uh, but that also reinforces that, well, it's part of my job. So, um, so when people are looking at this and filling it out, um, they often minimize it because it's just part of the job. So um, anyway, the first five re-experiencing the, then the next two are avoidance. Um, so it's avoiding memories, thoughts, or feelings, or avoiding external reminders, um, you know, such as avoiding people, places, situations, objects, that sort of thing. Um, then uh, the next seven, so it would be like eight through 14. These are like negative, uh, negative emotions and a change in cognition. And so uh, like that change in cognition might be like memory loss. Um, so almost every firefighter that I've diagnosed with PTSD has um, some degree of memory problems. And some of them it's so severe um, I've actually referred them to um, a, like a, a, a neuropsychologist and a neurologist, you know, to have a full neurological workup to make sure that there's nothing organic going on, um, like a brain tumor <laughs> um, or something else. So then the uh, uh, last, uh, last text are like hyperarousal symptoms. Um, and that seems to be one that a lot of firefighters identify with. And, um, you know, that's like the irritability um, or being angry. And that's a common one I hear. And it's usually um, a firefighter will come in and say, well, my wife and kids say I'm angry all the time. And so it's like somebody else will notice it first. Um, and then, um, being super alert or on guard, I hear that a lot. Um, having difficulty concentrating um, and then trouble falling or staying asleep. Um, so, and, and that might be one that a lot of uh, firefighters experience, but they experience it as like they might fall asleep, but they'll wake up and, um, you know, they'll wake up like in a sweat with their heart racing. And so that's kind of that combination of like being hyper aroused, but also um, it, it may be that they are, um, you know, that they were dreaming about some event that they had gone to. And so they're basically having that physiological reaction in their sleep. And then they can't go back to sleep because they're wired. Um, so 
So that's basically the um, the symptom grouping. And so in the first five, you only need to endorse one out of the five. The um, next two, you only have to endorse one out of the two. And then the next seven, uh, you have to endorse two out of the seven. And then the last six, it's two out of the six. And so it's like that endorsement, that number of symptoms would meet the minimum required to meet the criteria or, you know, that full criteria. Um, and then as far as like total score, because, you know, when you're looking at how bothered you are, you're looking at um, like not at all, which would be zero to extremely, which is four and then whatever in between. And so the, the cutoff that we generally look at, look at which is the recommendation by the people who developed the test and who have validated it is 31 to or um, yeah 31 to 33 and um and so it's like when somebody scores somewhere around there then there's a high likelihood that they they have ptsd they you know so they're they're meeting that criteria um and then even some people that maybe are lower, you know, we would want to look at that and then look at, are they minimizing their symptoms? Are they admitting these symptoms? Um, so prior to my realizations and my conversation with my, my best friend, I might've like not answered honestly on this assessment. I might have, I in all likelihood would have minimized it because I wasn't facing it. Um, but after the conversation, as difficult as it was, I felt that I was ready to face it um, and and to do something because I knew as soon as I admitted it, I was going to have to do something about it. And um, and I felt I actually felt kind of helpless in that sense of like finding someone like who am I going to find to to work with? to help me through this. Um, and do I really have PTSD? I kind of question that. So it's like, I'm like, all these things are going through my head that I have heard from my client. And, and I'm like, well, I guess, you know, that kind of is more evident. So, um, so I took this test and so I told you what kind of like what it, how it's laid out and what it is. And so for me, um, the first section, I, I like endorse four out of five. And so an endorsement on this means that you score two or above. So moderate, you're moderately bothered and anything that you're moderately bothered or higher, that means that you're endorsing that symptom like that is something that you are bothered by you're struggling with um the next two i like actually endorse the two out of two um i guess avoidance is what i'm really good at um and then out of the next seven i endorse six out of seven and the last six i endorse five out of six so i basically endorse 17 out of 20 symptoms um, at that two or higher. And then the total score. Um, so it's like, you know, we consider strongly consider PTSD when the score is 31 to 33, I scored 48. And, um, when I did that, I was like, kind of a mix of emotions. Like, Relief, because I finally acknowledged it, and sadness, um, and um, a little bit of fear, um, because it's like, well, now I got to do something about this. Um, but I knew that no matter what, it's like I needed to acknowledge it, and I needed to do something about it because I was going to, um, I was going to ruin my career, my reputation. Um, and it, it would have been far, far worse. I mean, it's like if, if admitting 
um, that I struggled with PTSD from my near-death experience um, it makes people not trust me and uh, and want help from me or or value the information I have. Um, you know, that's that's their stuff. If I hadn't admitted and faced this, then that is about me. And, and it would have been me doing it and destroying my reputation. Um, and so it's like, I get to choose, I get to choose how any of this plays out. And, and I chose the hard route, which is to face it. Um, and I know anybody who experiences PTSD can relate to that. Um, because it, it's hard. If it was easy, then it, you know people would deal with it a lot sooner, and it probably would never turn into PTSD, honestly. Um, so that is pretty much what my journey was. And so, what did I do about it? So basically, I I opened the floodgates, and I'm like, now what do I do? Um, and so. I am very, very fortunate to have um, a couple of really good friends who are also uh, mental health providers. And so I called them and, um, and one of them like called back and was like, you know what? It's like, I'll, I'll work with you. We could do EMDR. So um, he said, and that's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So that is a treatment that is um, very effective and um, commonly used to treat trauma um, because it allows you to work on the trauma memories without having to talk about all the details. Um, and so that's beneficial because one is it's hard for people to talk about the details and it prevents people from reliving their experience and becoming more um, destabilized. Um, so that's, I mean, cause nobody really, well, by human nature, our survival mechanism, we avoid what is unpleasant and uncomfortable. And so people don't like run towards like, oh, this is uncomfortable. I'm going to do it. So um, so we don't want to re-traumatize people. Um, we want to help them get through it without forcing them to relive it. And so EMDR allows that to happen. The other thing is, is that I commonly hear things from people like, well, I remembered and then they'll stop themselves and they're like, well, I don't know if I remembered it or if I just remember somebody telling me. But when something comes up like that, it means that um, it's part of it's part of what's going on. It's part of how they view the world and see themselves and it informs everything they do. So it, it doesn't really matter in that sense. Some people are like, well, I don't really remember. I just have this vague sense. Um, but this vague sense that they have is something that's disturbing. So um, EMDR works just as well if you don't remember everything, which is actually quite common um, with trauma memories because our brain wants to protect us. And so one way it protects us is it forgets um, or it stores something very deeply so we can't access it. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so I knew that I wanted to do EMDR. So my, like I said, my friend said he would do it. And it's, it's like, it's a type of treatment that you don't have to really open up and talk a lot about yourself. So it's not like you're revealing every little secret because you don't have to say it out loud. It's, it's like, you can't hide it from the treatment, but you can, Hide it from saying it out loud to somebody else, if that makes sense. So it's like, you honestly don't have to say anything if you don't want to during the process. You just would like bring to mind 
what is bothering you, like what the traumatic memory is and how it makes you feel and how it makes you think about yourself and where you feel it in your body. And then you would then experience some form of bilateral stimulation. And by virtue of the name, I mean, it was originally developed with eye movement, but they have also discovered that um, like auditory and tactile are just as effective. And so it's bilateral, meaning that like for eyes, you would look side to side. So left to right, and you would do that, you know, as fast as you can do, and you would be tracking like a light um, of some sort. Um, the uh, auditory, you wear headphones and you are focused on a sound that goes from what, you know, left to right. And then a tactile, it could be either you are, and so now I have video so I can show you. It's, it could be like doing this, which is um, called a, a butterfly hug. Uh, it's a technique that's used when uh, providers do group EMDR or, or they're working with children. Um, or, or you may like hold on to like paddles in your hand and then they would, um, like vibrate or thump alternately. So left to right. So, so there's a lot of ways that you can do it. Um, and, and it's very effective even doing it telehealth. Um, so, and, and then, um, and so, and then there's that distance. So it was like something that my friend felt like he could do without, you know, violating that dual role um, aspect where, you know, you generally don't treat your family and friends. Um, so, but as it turned out, I ended up working with his colleague, somebody that I didn't know. And, uh, and, and he said, he says, well, if you work with her, then I can be your friend. <laughs> and you can talk to me about the experience if you want. Uh, I could be there for support. So it, it worked out really well. And because I was so distressed, we decided to do intensive and intensive can look um, a few different ways. So if somebody, well, so standard, like the way it's trained, EMDR would be 90 minutes. But when you're doing EMDR and you're accepting insurance, um, insurance, it basically it says, well, you have to do it in 45 minutes to an hour um, longer. You have to justify, which you can in some cases, but you have to be able to show medical necessity. Um, and, and a lot of providers don't always do that um, as far as like being able to document medical necessity. So it's, it's something that the providers will stay away from and they, and they will just do the 45 minutes to an hour. Um, but an intensive may mean doing four hours in one day or, or even committing a whole day to doing it with, you know, a, a break periodically, or, well, let me say it, a break as needed, but you would basically be doing the work all day. Um, or it may mean doing one hour sessions like in a row. So you mm -hmm. may do like two in a row or three in a row. Um, so it, it kind of varies, you know, based on like what the provider wants, what the uh, client needs. So for me, we decided um, to do, because like I had this realization um, and then like the, next weekend we were going to be going to North Carolina and it's like, I couldn't even imagine going feeling the way I was feeling. And so we decided to do intensive. And so I was able to get three sessions under my belt before we went and then came back and had three more scheduled, um, but actually only did two. And so I actually feel really good. So I'm going to do once a week and then taper down to every other week. Um, but the first, the first meeting was about getting uh, a background of the problem. And there are different ways that it might be done. You know, like some, uh, some providers that do EMDR will do a, a background, like a full background and other providers might do a more focused background where you're focused more on, 
on the um, the reason that the person came in. And so you might not even really delve into like childhood, um, but some, uh, well, actually many EMDR therapists will do a comprehensive background where they will get into even childhood stuff. Um, and, and there's a strong belief that the only way to effectively treat someone um, for trauma, their trauma reactions is to actually get to the root of things, which is back in childhood, um, you know, because every experience builds on the experience that came before. Um, but it's like, that's, it's pretty rigorous. And it's sometimes hard to do um, because people are well defended. I mean, you didn't get to be an adult without being well defended. And, um, and they sometimes can't get past like the, the more immediate trauma, you know, like what, what's going on right now. So, um, so there's like this shift to treat more like, well, what is the person bringing in? So it's like, they're coming in with this problem. So let's treat this problem. And EMDR can, is really effective. Like I said, if it's related to trauma, but even if somebody's coming in for depression or chronic pain or um, they want to do better at something. So, um, so it actually has a wide variety of uses. So first day I went was just getting a background and um, an, an understanding of the problem. Then the second day we did um, a technique called flash technique, which is, just as interesting, I think, as EMDR. Um, so part of EMDR is creating a target list and creating the target list can be really activating. And, and that's what we're trying to avoid with the EMDR. And so sometimes we'll do the target list, but we won't have time to process anything. So the flash technique is a technique that can help with that activation. Um, and it can actually kind of, it, it can desensitize you uh, to that, that traumatic memory so that you can bring it up and then do EMDR to um, help process it so it gets stored appropriately. Um, and then sometimes people do the flash, te flash technique and they find that they have even shifted their view of it. So the, the, the purpose of EMDR is to, is to process the memory so it will get stored and be helpful. So you're making some new meaning out of it and, um, and having a shift in cognition. And, um, and they're finding that even doing the flash technique is actually having some of that effect. So, um, so it actually, it had started out and it seems to be growing and, um, and, and being effective. So, um, and it's something that, um, you know, like with EMDR, they're very explicit about like, you don't want, you don't want your clients to go away and do EMDR in themselves is kind of what they say. And then, um, even though you can go online and you can find like do self EMDR or you can go find a book that is like a self guide through EMDR. So it's out there, but it's generally not recommended, but the flash technique is something that they're like, yeah, this is simple. You can do it. Um, and so you use a combination of like a container that you create mentally and then um, a pleasant activity or a pleasant memory um, and so you bring the, the traumatic memory up and, and you kind of, you feel it, you sit with it for a, a moment and you feel everything and then you take it and you put it in your container. Um, and when, when we ask people to put it in their container, we're asking them to put it in the container for right now and we'll come back to it later. So, um, so you create whatever that, whatever that container is, and then you put that stuff in it. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's actually very hard. Um, 
And then when you do that, then you go to this pleasant activity. And so like I played a game on my phone when I did it. Um, I was going to color, but the um, first time I was going to do it, I ended up not being where I thought I was going to be. And so I didn't have my coloring book, which is a coloring book that my daughter actually has art in. So I wanted to color it. Um, So I ended up playing a game on my phone and it was something that was kind of, I guess, like, I don't know, calming, pleasant, uh, didn't require too much thought. And so, so I put my stuff in the container. I was playing my phone and focused on what I was doing. Uh, I guess it wasn't really playing. I was like coloring on it. Um, and then, and then uh, the therapist said flash. And when she said flash, then that meant I needed to blink fast four times. Um, and so there's two methods of flash. Um, the one that she does is this four blink flash. And then there's another method where it is a three blink flash. So I'm not quite sure why the variation, how, how that came about, but um, so she had me do four blanks and then I would go back to coloring and then she'd say flash. And so it's like every 40 seconds or so, 30 to 40 seconds, um, she would say flash and I would blink four times rapidly. Then she would have me go back to the memory that I put in my container and, and then look at it and, um, and then assess how distressing it felt to myself, myself, how distressing it felt to me. Um, And it it is so, it's still like, I know, I know these techniques um, and I'm still amazed at how they work um, because like the memory that I put in, which was uh, really, it was about this, it was about like the fear of dying or the worry of dying and um, leaving everybody I loved. and, and that image was me, I could just see myself sitting on the couch, just like sinking in um, more and more, uh, like, like the couch was just going to swallow me up. Um, and that sense of failure to thrive. Um, and I think that, that that I think that that's what scared me the most was that failure to thrive, because that's something that as a firefighter, we would often go to people who were I mean whatever age but like when they're when they're at the end stage of whatever it is that they're experiencing that's what you see is that fear of or the fear the um, failure to thrive um and so I I think it was like that I'd seen it so many times in other people and then when I felt it I was like I was worried and um I wasn't scared, but I was worried. But that that lack of scaredness at the time, like that did come back later, which was part of all of this. So it was a fear and a worry. And so that's that's what my that's what my stuff was. That's what I put in the container. And um after doing the flash technique, when I took it out, it's like I couldn't even really clearly visualize the the image anymore like it just it had changed it wasn't the same and um the emotions and the body sense had changed and i i it didn't feel so disturbing um and so so then we um put it back in the container did more flash and then um uh, we i think we checked on it one more time um the idea is to get your thuds, your subjective units of distress, um, on a scale of zero to 10, 10 being worse, the idea is to try and get it down to a zero. And, um, and then when it gets to a zero, then you're done and you leave it in the container. Um, and then you will come back to it the next time to actually do EMDR. So you can bring it up and, and then, uh, do EMDR. Um, if it, like feels like it's distressing or it's changed or something. So um, 
after that, then the next day was to do a session of EMDR. So I got to do EMDR um, before I went. So I got to experience the flash technique and EMDR uh, before I went to North Carolina. And I felt I felt pretty good after. Um, I felt uh, I also felt a little cautious. And then I also found myself thinking, is this real? <laughs> <laughs> everything that any client has ever voiced to me, I swear went through my head. Uh, like when I've done EMDR, I always get questions about like, did I do it right? Is it supposed to feel like this? Uh, is it okay that my mind wandered? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and is it real? Like, did I really have PTSD or like it, it just, all the stuff that I've heard and it's like, and I thought all those things too. And it's like, and I know the answer, but I still thought those things. Um, so that was kind of interesting. Uh, came back from North Carolina and I did, I did more sessions of EMDR and, um, and instead of like staying with that particular memory, because that memory didn't have the same effect anymore. Like it's a memory, but it's not, um, I don't have that same sense. Um, I don't have that body sense of it. I don't have that fear. Um, but there was, you know, there was other stuff there. And so we, um, like brought up the other stuff and did like the same, the same thing. I mean, we, um, more, I think that one, it didn't do flash on that, but we just went in and did the EMDR. So, um, so, and I, I felt good and I'm like, okay, I know there's stuff there. I just don't know what to bring up now. Um, so we're like down to, we're going to be doing once a week and, and working on stuff. So, um, and that's something that when you do intensive, it's, it's like you're, you're working on it and, and it can sometimes get resolved in the first session. And, um, and then there might be something else that might be there, but it's not the thing that you came in with. So you work on that. And then, and then it might be where, like, for me, you're like, well, I, I mean, I know that there's stuff. It's just not readily coming up. And so then it's like, okay, well, you know, we don't have to force that. Um, and we'll work on it when it comes up. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. So it's, it's uh it's been a really interesting process. Um sometimes I'm like I I wish I wasn't a psychologist so that I could just like experience it and and not not have to analyze it I guess. Um but even being a psychologist and knowing this stuff and hearing it and helping other people I, it, it was still really hard and it was hard to recognize it and it was, um, hard to face it and, and it's hard to talk about it. Um, but it's a lot easier now than it was at the beginning. Um, so you can ask my husband about that. So, because that was something I did is after, after I did the assessment, I brought it in and just put it down in front of them. And I didn't say anything. And he looked at me and he's like, is this you? And I'm like, it's, yes, it's me. Because I didn't know what to say and I didn't know how to say it. And um, that's all I could do. So um, that is my story. And I will tell you that I feel a lot better. Um, I, you know, I am, I am human like everybody else. And, um, I'm not immune to uh, pain and suffering like everybody else. But I, I think one thing that I've learned and I've learned it a couple of times is that I can kind of, I can kind of choose my suffering to, to some extent. I mean, I think pain and suffering is part of the human condition, part of being human. Um, no one is a superhero uh, you know, it might be nice to fantasize about it, but I'm not, you're not, nobody is. 
And so it's like we sometimes carry too much and we carry it too long before we get help. And that's kind of where I was. And even I feel like I should know better, but I, you know, I thought it was going to be okay and it was going to go away. Um, and, and it, and it did. And it, I mean, it can, and it did. It just sometimes takes more purposeful work. It takes facing it and being purposeful about changing it. So that's where I'm at right now. So I, I hope that this story, um, resonates with you and that if you're experiencing anything like what I've experienced, that you can reach out and get help from somebody. So, um, I think that that's, that's it. That's a good place to stop. Um, and I know John is on, I don't know if he wants to add anything, but he's welcome to, if he wants to. Well, thank you. Um, yes, you need to give people your email address. So oh, they can contact okay. you. Okay. And your phone number. Uh, um, so my email address is Beth, B-E-T-H, at integrativemhw.com. Um, you know, if I had been aware of that, I actually could write that down and hold it up. <laughs> And and my phone number uh, is 425-281-7977. And so you're um, welcome to email or call, um, you know, leave me a message. Uh, if you have questions, uh, give me questions. If you have suggestions, uh, if you want to hear something about something else, um, you know, uh, feel free to let me know. Um, and if you're struggling somehow um, and you don't know where to go, um, I will do my best to help direct you. Um, so, yeah. And I think, I think that's it. So thank you for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.